Welcome to Startup Stories, where we go behind the scenes of some of the most interesting and innovative tech startups in the world. Each episode will bring you in-depth interviews with entrepreneurs and business leaders, sharing their personal stories on success, failure, and everything in between. So whether you're an entrepreneur yourself or someone that's just generally interested in the world of startups, then Startup Stories is the perfect place for you to gain insight and inspiration into some of the most exciting players in the game. So sit back, relax, and join us on a journey of Startup Stories. Max, thanks for joining me on the Startup Stories podcast. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. My pleasure as always. Of course, we've got some listeners. I want them to have some context. Can you give them a brief introduction into who you are? Brilliant, yeah. So my name is uh, Maximilian Notter. Max is the easier part. Uh, I'm originally from Geneva in Switzerland. Right now, I'm the co-CEO of Humano since uh, August 2020. We are right now the European leader uh, in terms of corporate well-being uh, and well-being products as well for insurances. And uh, yeah, it's been quite a journey so far and happy to go a bit deeper into that journey together today. Absolutely. Looking forward to uncovering the story and you know, trying to work out how you operate as an individual. And I think the best way to do that is to go back to where it all began. So from your earliest memory, can you take me back to your childhood and describe to me what life was like? Sure. I guess life was very peaceful as a child, but also very exciting at the same time. I was fortunate enough to grow up in a combination of very privileged situations, I would say. Number one being born in Switzerland, which I think in general is just a a great country to grow up in due to the quality of the infrastructures, the quality of education, the safety, just a variety of indicators that just make growing up there very, very comfortable, I would say. And then also in my family situation, I was very fortunate uh, to grow in a family where we didn't lack of anything. And that actually also had the opportunity to help me with discovering a wide variety of experiences in life quite early on. So taking on lots of sports, lots of music as well. Uh, Music has become a tremendous source of inspiration in my life. And so I could try on many different things and actually was pushed also just to try many, many different things. So I was very, very grateful for the way I was brought up. And I think that had a, you know, created a very entertaining and fulfilling childhood, not without its pressures, of course, as well, because I think opportunity comes with pressure as well, but a very fulfilling one indeed. You mentioned there that music was a great source of inspiration for you as well. Why? Well, I guess I fell in it quite early. I started my first piano lessons at the age of three. And I realized very quickly that I really enjoyed music and, and what, it's, uh, what, it, what it did with me, so to speak, um, that I was able to connect on an emotional level with melodies and that I was able to deeply lose myself in some melodies. And over time, I then realized that piano, even though it was already for me a great instrument, I realized that I didn't want to learn it the academic way. And uh, at the age of 10, stopped all lessons, tried my own journey with piano and I've been playing also ever since. And so discovered that I can build my own world, so to speak, within within music. And so right now I, I play the piano. I'm also uh, pretty much a burning cliche, I would say, because I'm also DJing on the side and singing as well and uh, many different things that I'm doing with music. But it's my way of expressing how I feel and also letting go of a few emotions, converting them into something creative without holding them too long in, in, my, in my own body. I love that. A man of many talents. Do you use music to stimulate you when working like when you you want to get your head down and finish a product do you have to listen to music or you're a silent guy it really depends i don't 
listen to a lot of music when I'm working, mostly because uh, with my job, I'm mostly in meetings, to be honest. But when I need to be in focused work, then it's either opera or techno. But it's um, it has to be music that I can really have just in the background and that, that I think is going to, yeah, just, I guess, to provide the right kind of background noise that is entertaining, but also not obsessing so that I can really just focus on what I'm doing. But I found out that uh, the uh, Enchanted Flute from Mozart was probably with the best piece I, I could listen to for work, weirdly enough, uh, but it just went. Yeah. <laughs> Now, that is really interesting. So I'm, I'm quite intrigued to understand how you would have described yourself as a child then. So you talked about you, you tried many things, sports, music. Back then, if you can really think about it, how would you have described yourself as a, as a child back then? I think um, as a child, I think t- child and teenager are very different, right? But as a child, I would say very, very cheeky. I was always up for stupid stuff um always getting a bone broken uh, always uh, doing uh, one thing too extreme always uh, into sports any kind of sports i had two goals when i was a kid first one was to become a clown the other one was to become james bond <laughs> very con- big contrast gives you an idea of uh, what i was interested in which was making other people laugh and stunts and uh, just doing dangerous stuff that's who I was as a kid, I would say. Would you describe yourself as an extrovert? No, I would not. I mean, at the time, oh, really? as a kid, as a kid, for sure, as a kid, for sure, right now, I wouldn't say I'm an extrovert. I would say I'm one of those, one of those introverted extroverts, I think. Because I still feel a bit shy. Yeah, it sounds like from what you were describing in your childhood, you was extrovert through action rather than necessarily being right. vocal. You're right. Okay, interesting. Okay. Was there anyone in your life back then that had a big influence on you growing up? Well... I guess it all starts with the parents, right? And so obviously, I mean, they had a tremendous impact on me. Uh, from my mother, I learned to some extent discipline and, you know, the grit to go for what you go, you want to go for. And the fact that you should never stop fighting for, for what you want to achieve. And so she was instrumental in teaching me that and teaching me that I should always hold myself to the highest standards. And from my father, I learned somewhat of the more... Uh, kind of enjoying life side of things. Uh, so I think it was a very good combination. And then in terms of other people outside of my immediate family, well, I had a few friends that had a, had a big impact on me. I think the impact was, was even bigger when, it, when, when it, I went towards uh, young adulthood, you know, like university and, and, and that kind of time. But I've realized that I always needed someone a bit outside of family to open up my perspectives as well on stuff that might have not gone into the mold of how I was uh, raised. And I've always been interested in kind of understanding what was happening outside that mold to kind of pick and choose what I liked best from both worlds. Mm -hmm. Okay. So elaborating on that then, was there a moment in your life that you can think back to that had a a pivotal moment that had uh, the biggest impact onto what made you who you are today? Yeah, very clearly. So I think there were maybe two moments. Number one was when I started university. I finished school quite early. I was always a bit ahead of time at school and I was at school with people that were three years older than I was, which when you're 12 is is quite difficult. Uh, (laughs) You're at different stages of puberty, different stages of growth and just size, which for guys is apparently important at that age and so I was I was heavily bullied at school which kind of tamed the cheeky Max uh, the cheeky (laughs) and turned him into more a bit of a cynical one and definitely a hurt one and when I arrived at university then suddenly it was a new world for me because I understood the age difference was still going to be there but it didn't matter anymore and suddenly it was actually not 
frowned upon or used as leverage to bully me, but actually celebrated because of its difference. It was a very liberating moment to arrive at university and to realize, okay, my life is not just going to be getting bullied and having to deal with it, but actually this, it's, it's gonna turn out quite fun. And I think it's gonna be more enjoyable than I thought it would be. So that was, that was the first pivotal moment. And the second one, less of a happy one, but nevertheless super important, my own self-development was actually in 2016, where suddenly lost my father, uh, 19th of February, 2016, lost him uh, completely, uh, completely unexpectedly. And that made me question a lot of my beliefs, a lot of my paradigms and ways of looking at life. And I realized that I wanted to, to have a life that's more full, a life that's more decisive in a way, uh, like really deciding how I wanted to live my life and having an active part to play in it. And many, many different things changed from that point. It was kind of a, a, a sequence of changes happening in my life from learning how to, to travel, learning how to be comfortable with myself being alone, uh, learning how to discover new horizons, uh, just going on that journey for myself to understand what I was really looking for in life. Yeah, that's really interesting and really touching at the same time. So you say, as you said, you learned a lot when your, your father passed away. Why did that make you reevaluate everything out of curiosity? Well, I think, you know, when you're losing someone that's going before their time, so to speak, you then start to realize, well, what have they done in their time? And then the next question is, what will I do with my time? Because if you cannot assume that you will go at a very old age, it kind of makes you think that you shouldn't wait for that age to start to do the things that you want to do, right? Yes. And so it kind of makes you suddenly take a bird's view on your life and try to figure out, okay, where am I going actually with my life? And is that going to be the life that if I die at the same age that he does or that he did, will I have been satisfied with my life? And I think that's the crucial question. And from that point, if you open up that box, then there's really no end to the other kinds of boxes that you will open because <laughs> suddenly you start to question the entire premise of how you thought you were going to build your life or how you actually didn't think of how you were going to build your life, but just let it build itself without having an active part in it. Uh, just taking the next step and the next step and the next step and not really having some kind of a guiding, uh, you know, set of principles or, or set of goals that you wanted to achieve i mean i find that you know the natural causes of life so fascinating how it can have such an impact once something so crazy happens like that but it's good from your own self to to have seen that and seen a different outlook and you know as you say you don't know when your time can be so make sure it's it's fulfilling as as fulfilling as it possibly can be Correct. because you just you just don't know very interesting okay so what was your first job? Uh, my first, so uh, are we talking internship or proper job? <laughs> first ever job. So uh, I started uh, right after university. I started as a consultant uh, at Accenture in, in Zurich. Before that, I had done a few few internships in banks, but, uh, but, mo but the first real job was Accenture as a consultant. What did that job teach you? Well, I guess consulting has this weird way of putting you in situations where you have to perform very quickly, even though you're not as ready to perform as you could be. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's the number one thing that consulting taught me, which is like, we're going to throw you in a situation with a client, sometimes very senior, and you're just going to have to show that you have a reason for being here and that you actually know what you're doing, even though in most cases, especially as a junior, you really don't. So it's kind of building that resourcefulness and that understanding that at some point you will be able to manage almost every situation, at least in, this, in a way that's satisfying. And the other thing that it taught me is structure, because uh, I think one of the great strengths of consulting is you're surrounded by 
pretty much excellent people all around you. And there's this constant expectation of excellence that comes with actually the price that clients pay for your presence on every any single day, right? So if you're paying those amounts, do you expect excellence at every minute? Uh, so that's a huge amount of pressure, but at the same time, it's, I think, being confronted and surrounded by excellence is probably one of the most defining factors of a good career. It's what I come to understand. Uh, because if you've never seen excellence, you don't know what you're going for. You're always trying to improve, right? Everybody's trying to improve. But if you've never seen what excellence looks like, then it's very difficult because you're someone without a map. It doesn't mean that you yourself have to be excellent at every point in time. But just being in the presence of excellence around you is, I think, tremendously important because you start to realize, okay, well, things are supposed to work that way and they can work that way. And uh, now I'm going to try to see how I can adapt that to my current reality. And so I think, yeah, what I'm taking back from Accenture is really those those two things, plus also the, the traveling bit, uh, which I enjoy quite a lot, being confronted with many different cultures and nationalities and understanding how to build high-performing teams with people from multiple nationalities and cultures and backgrounds. I think that was super interesting and, and a thing that I'm taking with me ever since. If someone isn't surrounded by excellence, what's the alternative to experience excellence? Well, I think, I mean, you can you can do it as well, right? And, uh, I think it's, uh, but it's, I think it's tremendously more difficult and takes a lot more effort and dedication. I think being surrounded by excellence is kind of a shortcut to it, <laughs> because you can just open your eyes and try to ingest and integrate what's happening around you and what you're seeing and understanding why it works that way. If you haven't had that chance, then you have to read a lot, talk talk with a lot of people, and you have to get an idea uh, through other sources of what excellence looks like. Right? Yeah. And feeling it is, or being surrounded by it and therefore kind of in integrating it kind of naturally without it being a conscious decision is much easier than having to open 15 books and try to see how you feel about that and how it would turn out in practice. And it's a lot more effort. Doesn't mean that it's impossible, for sure not. And uh, there's a lot of people that will prove that it's, it's, it's possible to to not have a lot of experience and build something truly amazing. Uh, so it's definitely possible, but it's going to take just that much more effort. Yeah, I asked this question really from a, a selfish standpoint, to be honest, because with my own business being the founder, whilst we don't, we have a very much a flat hierarchy, of course, when you look at it from on paper, I'm at the top. So I found myself a couple of years ago, a bit stagnated thing. Oh, I'm not learning from anyone else because I'm teaching what I know. Yep. You know, I'm not learning anywhere else. So what I did is I got a mentor, best investment I ever made. They've already, you know, walked the walk and know a lot more than me. And I've learned so much from them. And then joining that community within my mentorship, I met other like-minded founders that perhaps were doing a few different things that I was doing. I learned a lot from them. You got your reading, you got your podcasts, you got your YouTube as well. So there are a collective amount of things that I was doing and also reading books. So I was just curious to get your take on it. it was kind of similar. Yeah. So yeah, I think when you're kind of in that position where who else do I learn from, you have to surround yourself with like-minded people and Correct. look externally. But we also need to realize that, and I think you've done a, a, I mean, brilliant step with the mentorship. I think it's also tremendously important, but we have to realize that we as in your case, founder, in my case, co-CEO, we have access, we have different kinds of access to people than, let's say, the average Joe would, right? And it's a tremendous privilege for us, but it means that if I would go to, to someone random in the street and they would tell me, they would ask me the same question, like, how do I get the feeling of what excellence looks like? I cannot just tell them, surround yourself with founders and and, <laughs> and, and mentors, you know, they're, they're going to have a more, a diff more difficult time getting access to these people, which is a shame, but it's the reality of, of life. 
I think uh, at some point there is a lot of effort that can be made to provide mentors because uh, I do think that mentorship is actually reachable or in, within reach for many, many different people. But can it, getting that peer, uh, peer-to-peer network and, underst- and like-minded people, as you said, takes a lot of effort and maybe a bit less effort for, some, for, for people like us. Yeah, I, what I learned with that yeah, what I learned with that was that if you want to be in that kind of circle, then you can't just go there to take. Correct. You have to also give value. And that's why it's hard to get in. I learned that very hard. Is that you can't just go in there saying, oh, can you teach me this? Can you teach me that? You also have to bring value for them to right. want to be in your in your space. Absolutely. Which is absolutely right, right? You don't. You can't just be go, going around being a taker. You have to be a giver, for yeah. sure. Yeah. All right. So walk me through your journey then from Accenture right up to you know where you are today with Humano so you joined Humano in the midst of the uh, COVID August 2020 how did you get there well so from from Accenture I think so I left Accenture in 2019 start of 2019 uh, to move to Berlin I wanted to go and work for startups because I wanted to work for something number one to not have a project that changed every two months uh, <laughs> I think that was the, fir- the first one second thing I wanted to work for something that I believed in and I think it was one of those bold decisions that I did that I'm very happy that I did even though not an easy one because of course when you're moving from a uh, consulting job in Switzerland to a startup in Berlin, you're going to take a huge pay cut and you have to be okay with that. And you have to understand for yourself why that's worth it. And for me, it was like, I'm going to work t- towards something that I'm passionate about. And so the first startup I worked for was Hey Jobs here in Berlin. And I stayed about one year there, a bit more than a year. And I have to say, we were talking about being surrounded by excellence. And that was truly the case at Hey Jobs as well. I was very, very fortunate that I joined as kind of the right arm of, uh, of the founder and CEO, I was his head of strategic projects. In the end, it was kind of a chief of staff position. And the way that he was working and the way that also other leaders at Jobs were working and also how they were thinking about hiring, building teams and managing performance and just moving forward was truly inspiring. And I've met some of the best people that I've ever worked with at my time at Jobs, mm-hmm. which I think is, was instrumental in me being where I am now. So what happened in the end is COVID arrived and it was a tough moment for the recruiting industry. Hey Jobs was active in the recruiting industry. Tough moment for recruiting. You probably know about that yourself. Uh, the first wave was a mess and nobody knew where things were going. And so we had to come to the agreement together with, uh, with the founder that in those times you don't need to have strategic projects because actually the company is, uh, is kind of downsizing a bit and everybody was on furlough and you know it was a very, very tough time. So we, we agreed that it was not the best solution to continue, but actually with all challenges, opportunities arise as well. And actually one of um, the investors of HeyJobs uh, contacted me and um, I was in process, uh, process with many other companies at that time, trying to see what my next station in life would be. And then this investor called me and uh, said, hey, I'm also invested in a company called Humano. Uh, there's a solo founder there and he's looking for someone to help him manage the company at the same level that he does. I think you could be the right candidate. How about I just connect you two? And that's how I met Philip. It was actually pretty much three years from now, uh, three years ago. So in May 2020, I had my first call with him and we started talking about a common future at Humano. And um, I immediately liked the vision of the company, immediately liked Philip as a, as a person. And um, then we just went into the interview process, so to speak. And, 
and um, and a few months later, I, I I had my first day at Humano, and uh, my life has changed ever since. <laughs> I mean, from what my research into the company, it looks like a fantastic company. I'm a big advocate for health, as I mentioned on your post the other day. I'm really curious to find out. You mentioned that you was in a couple of processes with other companies. What separated your decision from the rest to join Humano? Well, I think there's multiple factors. Let's face it, I won't try to hide it. Being in the process for a position of CEO was tremendously impressive and exciting and something that I could not just underestimate, right? I had to give it a proper consideration because I knew this is not the kind of opportunities that you get just, you know, every now and then. It's maybe this kind of once in a lifetime shot. Yeah. The title did something, right? Uh, but I think the, the other factors were clearly the vision of the company, the fact that what I really liked and still do like about uh, Humano is we don't need to hide behind nice words for a vision. Because if we are saying that we want to empower people and organizations to live to lead healthier lives everywhere, it actually means that if we're able to do that, if we're actually able to make people healthier, then actually everybody wins. We win, our clients win, the users or the employees or the policyholders win because they're healthier, right? Everybody wins. So there's no kind of vision that you have on paper because it sounds nice, but actually you're just in it to make money, which is completely fair, by the way, right? But we actually don't have any inherent conflict of interest uh, within our vision and scaling the company and, and, you know, going for higher valuations and, you know, driving the growth, right? It's actually all in one line. And if we're able to make people healthier, then everything works for everyone, right? Absolutely. So I thought that was a really nice thing to have. And then, of course, there's, you know, the, the challenge itself of taking a company that has found to some extent product market fit and seeing how to grow that company and how to bring in all the structures that you need to turn it into a scale up. And I think that was a very exciting one. So you joined Humano four years after its founding in, in 2020, right? Correct. So when you get that acceptance, like, right, you're going to become the co-CEO on the side with Philip. When you get that acceptance, what did you have in your mind, right, when I go there, this is, this is what I want to achieve? What did you envision? Well, I think, I'm, again, being brutally honest, right, my first instinct was don't screw up, at least not in the first few months, because I knew that those first, actually the first few days and first few weeks are going to be instrumental in the way I'm going to position myself. Because I knew it's not just a position where where I'm going to be just doing one kind of task or topic that I'm going to drive, but I'm going to be touching all the different topics in the company. So I knew I needed very quickly to position myself in the right way. Uh, so I knew that was going to be instrumental. It was, of course, very, very intimidating to arrive in that position um, and to suddenly understand what it means to be at that level of, of leadership and what it takes from you personally and psychologically and how life changes when suddenly you get into that kind of a position. But in the end, I knew it was going to be all about all about the people that I'm going to have interactions with and about how I'm going to be able to convince them at every level, whether it, whether it is employees, Philip, uh, the rest of the management team or the board, the investors, that I was going to be there to do the right kind of job and that I was going to bring the right kind of performance. So it was a lot about positioning, but also positioning also in delivery, right? In executing on what I said I would execute on. And so one of the things that I did when I arrived is, which is pretty classic, I would say, but I also uh, uh, drafted a, a hundred day plan, which was, in my view, quite ambitious. I wanted to, I wanted it to be ambi ambitious enough that it communicated that I was not there to just uh, wait and see what happened. But I also wanted to come up with a plan that I 
kind of thought I could achieve a stretch, but a feasible stretch. And yeah, uh, so the first few days were, were tremendously exciting, daunting as well, but uh, I learned a lot from it. Was this role a huge step up compared to any other position you've had before? Uh, obviously. I mean, I've had I've had team management experience before, whether it is at Hey Jobs with a small team or before in my consulting projects, sometimes managing huge teams. But I think the role of uh, CEO or co-CEO in my case is really something that you can't really prepare for. Mm-hmm. Or you can try to prepare as much as you can, but it's still going to give you a big slap when you arrive on your first day. And so, so from that perspective, I think that we, we should also never underestimate the fact that or the luxury that it is to have someone that can take the responsibility for you. <laughs> and when you're at the top and there's no one to do that, no one to tell you if you're doing the right thing or not, no one to tell you if you've done a great job or not, no one to take the blame if you mess up. Just abandoning that cushion was very, very daunting, but exciting at the same time. Absolutely. So on that subject then, talk to me about the unexpected aspects of leadership, what did you not expect about the position? Well, I think I, I think it's mostly the inherent psychological elements of being in the position itself. And I know it sounds very very mystical in the way I'm saying it, but I, let me try to be a b- bit more concrete. One of my first learnings that I'm going to share with you an anecdote because it was in the first day uh, of Humano. I wanted to take absolutely every single employee individually out for coffee because uh, I thought I'm just new in this company. I want there's it's still manageable. It's 40 people. There's no excuse for me not to meet everyone. And I want to understand how they look at the company, how they feel working there. What is their life look, looking like? Uh, what can I do for them? What are they excited about? The whole thing, right? So my plan was to take out every single employee one by one for coffee. And so the first one I, I, I brought out to very nice specialty coffee place next door, uh, next to the office. And it was just very nice coffee, came back, came back to the office wanted to get the second or the next person that I would take out for coffee. And when I exited the office, I realized, just kind of dawned on me, I will need to take every single employee to the same coffee place. Why? (laughs) It's such a stupid detail, right? But if I'm bringing one employee to a specialty coffee place and the other one to like the cheap coffee around the corner at some kind of random bar, then one of them is going to have this nice four or five euro coffee that is just excellent and the other one is going to have the crappy one and inherently whether i like it or not they're going to think that i advantaged one more that i, that I thought one was more exciting than the other or that i preferred one person to the other and so then i realized that i'm always communicating whether i want to or not i'm just always communicating even mm-hmm. when i don't say anything even when it's just as stupid as selecting which place we're going to buy coffee from it's communicating and I needed to be aware of that. And so it immediately dawned on me that my role was, whether I liked it or not, and it was a big challenge, but it was going to be much more symbolic than I ever thought it would be. And that therefore I needed to be very, very conscious. And I think it reflects as well in other situations when you're meeting with a very junior employee, for example, and for you, it's the 12th meeting in the day, but for them, it's a meeting with the CEO. Yes. And you kind of have to respect that, Right. I'm a big believer in being a servant leader. What does that mean? It means you're actually putting yourself in the shoes of the people in front of you and trying to make their lives easier. And so you have to respect the fact that for you, the way I like to describe it is what it feels like in those situations. It's like you're in a, on a battlefield and there's bombs exploding everywhere and bullets flying next to your ears. And those bullets are like a big client is churning or there's a, 
there's a big client that we might be uh, we might be losing in terms of new prospects or there's a high performance employee that's going to leave the company or any kind of things that are threatening you as a business and you as a CEO that you have to kind of deal with right and those bullets are flying and those bombs are exploding next to you and you're in the middle of, of that battlefield but then when you have that meeting with that junior employee that has his one of a lifetime or one of a, once in a year kind of shots to have a one on one meeting with the CEO then you need to to completely forget all these bombs and bullets and put a nice table with a nice white cloth on it and sit in front of that employee and forget all these bombs and just look at that employee in the eyes and say, what can I do for you? How are you feeling? How yeah. is life? You know, and it seems like the most normal thing to do, but it's also extremely difficult because for you, that conversation is not as relevant as the rest of the things that are happening throughout your day. But you need to respect that for that person, this conversation is very relevant because it has all the hopes, aspirations, dreams, everything goes into that meeting as well, right? So you kind of have to respect that. And so this disbalance is something that you need to be very conscious about and uh, very respectful of. Yeah, it's very true. And also from a different perspective, it's probably one of the most important conversations as well, because the people are the business, right? Yes. One thing I, I learned from someone that I heard this many years ago was that you think, many people think that climbing the ladder to the higher positions means that everybody else serves you. He said, actually, it's the complete opposite. Correct. In a higher position, you serve your team, the people, not the other way around. And, it, and it's an absolutely unbelievable outlook, which is very true, I believe anyway. Yeah, it, absolutely. And you're absolutely right. I mean, the thing is, I think you, you start to realize, and that's what I was talking about before between, with the difference between like symbolic and what you're actually doing. You need to realize that, as you said, the meeting is extremely relevant for the company as well because you're communicating. It's not about what is actually being said in the meeting. That's a bit less relevant because maybe they're going to present to you a small task that happened and they're going to have that it's their time to shine so what they're actually talking about is maybe not that relevant but the interaction and what it communicates itself is super irrelevant it's super relevant to the to the entire company because how they're going to feel like when they go out of the meeting it's going to be talked about in their teams for sure right and all of these things so so you're absolutely right the conversation itself is super relevant the topic not necessarily sometimes it is right uh, but not always but you're right you start to feel that pressure of actually serving and so pressure it's a privilege as well because uh, yeah. uh, you can change their lives for the better if you're doing a good job uh, it's a tremendous chance but it is a pressure as well one you, you have to learn to deal with well, it goes back to what you were saying about one going in a good coffee shop and one going in a, you know, a cheaper coffee shop it ultimately our goal is that when they leave that meeting do they feel valued or not Absolutely. regardless of their level of importance in the in the position or task that they're doing correct so it could be a junior or an intern but if they feel valued in that what they're doing as the intern then that's the most important thing and i correct. think across the board yeah yeah okay so you joined in 2020 as we say we're now in 2023 what impact has your position had on the business since you joined well, I think it's always, so to kind of set the context, when I joined the company, I owned all the operations teams. So uh, the only, the, the topics that I did not own were product and tech and revenue. And this has now changed. Uh, right now, uh, I own pretty much every, every area of the company except for revenue teams. And that kind of makes it a bit more tricky to assess the impact on a pure way, right? Because I do have an impact on how we're scaling as a company, but of course, since I'm not leading the revenue teams myself, the impact is not more is not strictly direct, so to speak. Um, however, I think that what I'm bringing to the company is structure and communication. I think is 
kind of the core strengths that I'm bringing. And that has a lot of side advantages, right? It's how we talk within the company about what we try to achieve. It's how you set up the teams uh, so that we're set up in the right way to achieve those goals. We've had a few very large successes over the last few years where we understood how we are revamping our internal processes and values so that we can have a, can be a better workplace. And since then, we've been able to attract much, much uh, better talent as well. We've been able to retain quite well. And that has also been seen in, in satisfaction scores of employees that have gone up quite a bit. And so, so that's kind of one of the impacts. I think the second impact is definitely in the way that we are communicating to investors and to potential or existing, right? And in the structure that I was bringing within the financial apparatus of the company, because I come from a finance background, I studied finance as well. And so I think that that was instrumental in raising our Series B in July 2021, where we raised uh, about $10 million uh, to fund our growth. And so I think there, I mean, this process was led mostly by by Philip and myself, right? Both of us going out to the market. So they're quite a direct impact, I would say. Mm -hmm. And then it's really been about creating all the structures that we can continue to grow and kind of continually assess where the company had its biggest core strengths how to build up on them. That's been uh, mostly the impact. And then, of course, you know, building the teams around me and around the company. And there I'm very, very lucky to now be working with some of the best professionals I've been working with in my entire career. And so I'm very happy of the team that's around me. And I think with this team, we can we can reach, uh, you know, amazing things together. Absolutely. So what's, uh, what's been the, the toughest part of your journey with Humano and how did you overcome it? I'm wondering if I should give a bit of a mysterious answer, but I think but I think it holds true for me. I think the most difficult part is the fact that there is no single most difficult part or that isn't, there isn't also the most cheerful part either. I think it's the, the most difficult part is to, is to understand that within one day you're going to have 10 victories and 15 defeats. And so when you come back home and either your friends or your significant other asks you, how was your day? There's really not an answer to give. In most cases, it's not like you don't have a unquestionably good day uh, or unquestionably bad day. It kind of it doesn't even average out because you have tremendous like wins happening in a day, tremendous uh, losses happening in a day as well. And so I think that's been probably the most difficult part. But I think going now a bit less meta, I think a very difficult phase for us was just as we were understanding how to deal with two of our verticals in the company and that have different life cycles in terms of where the product is right now and different potentials and different implications on scaling. And and it felt for the longest time as if those two verticals were actually competing with each other. And I think managing that from a purely, first of all, intellectual standpoint and strategic standpoint and in execution was a very, very challenging time, I think, for the whole organization as a whole and definitely for me trying to guide that ship. Yeah. Bit of a contrast then. So what's been, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say what's been the highlight of your career with Humano so far? I think it was definitely raising our Series B, which is not about absolutely the absolute amount of money that we've raised, but it's it was a confirmation of everything the company had achieved so far. It was a confirmation mm-hmm. of how much belief there was that the company was going to continue to achieve such things. It was a tremendous pride as well to be able to ensure the success of the company going forward, actually the surviving of the company going forward as well, because we were not making profit, you know, 
So with all startups, you have runway, right? And suddenly you extend that runway for quite a bit, uh, quite a bit of a time. So it was just this entire relief of and pride of we've done it. We know where we're going, and and we are able to convince others as well. Uh, so that was number number one. And I think in terms of pride, well, there's multiple moments that seem irrelevant, but that give you massive pride. And this is when you see. It's stupid things like seeing a leader completely unravel and 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 turn out to be an amazing leader and and seeing them yeah. perform. It's it's a small thing, right? But but in the end, those are almost the kind of things that give me most pride because you start to realize, okay, I'm I, like for personal pride myself, I'm able to build leaders, and that's I think the biggest thing that you can do as a CEO. And then seeing that you're creating teams that are performing not only but also are happy together and happy to spend their time there. Um, so it's again, it's there's a dichotomy of these things, right? Raising a uh, raising a, a, a Series B and then seeing a leader performing seems like two things on a completely different level but bring you almost the same kind of pride. And it's a weird thing to manage as well for yourself. Yeah, and they all contribute in one way or another, right? Correct. So what are the long-term goals and ambitions for Humana then? How far do you want to take it? Well, I think right now we're in a very, very exciting position because we what we did until now is we've built the best digital platform to support like, policyholders and employees on their journey to become healthier, right? Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing is that our product's performing tremendously, but we're also seeing that there's a lot of individual solutions out there that are missing access to large companies or large uh, insurance companies as well. And also that are very difficult to roll out because basically they're very difficult to assess. If I'm providing a point solution for a specific health problem, how does that affect the company? How does that affect the insurance? What is their kind of business case on that, right? And so we're seeing that actually one of the most exciting things happening in our market right now is that health benefits and well-being is moving from being a cost center to something that you expect a return on. Mm-hmm. And the return might not only be monetary, but in the end, it's going to turn into monetary value, right? It's going to be on your retention. It's going to be on your sickness days. It's going to be a lot of things, right? Being part of the wave or being where we are positioned right now as uh, as the best solution in, in Europe right now for insurances or for corporates, right at this stage where actually our bets of the last years are coming true, which we also always thought we had to be holistic because we thought that only if you're holistic, you can actually showcase what you're doing and what the impact is. And suddenly we're seeing that this bet is holding true and that we're in the position to, to, to just grab the whole market. So over the last few weeks, we've secured a few, we've opened a few new markets, uh, announcements to come, I won't say more, but we've opened a few more markets very successfully. And, uh, and so I think right now we're super excited because we're building what you could call in a certain way the health operating system for enterprises and insurances. We're trying to, we, you know, we, we understood that we're in the position to build a whole ecosystem around us and make it very easy for companies to purchase, manage, analyze, and steer health in their companies. And that's, I think, a very exciting innovation to be at the forefront of. And so, yeah, the team is tremendously excited. I'm seeing now also a new wind in the company that when what you've been preaching for years is finally starting to hold true and you can see observable proof that your bets are how the market is turning, then suddenly the excitement in the company comes to a level that is amazing because we're like, okay, we're here. This is our bet. We're going to win this. And it's just very nice. Absolutely. There's nothing greater than seeing everything come to fruition. Yeah. You know, when you've talked about it for so long. Yeah. Very excited. I look forward to following the journey myself. So on again, elaborating on that from a personal standpoint, then Max, 
why do you do what you do? I mean, your job is must be so stressful. It's a, it's not everybody gets to a position like you. Why do you do what you do still to this very day? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Okay, so I think beyond the cliche answer that also holds true for me, which is that it's about the people. I mean, uh, it's very easy to give that as an answer, right? But it, but it, it does hold true for me that you know working with amazing people every day is 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 just tremendous luck and chance and privilege. But I think there's a couple elements. I really do think that we are now a category leading product and I think leading a company that is a category leading a product is super exciting. I think that we are, when I'm looking at the numbers, uh, to be very precise, I'm from Switzerland, right? I grew up in Switzerland and we are very strong in Switzerland with Humano. We have, uh, we're working with the top insurance companies in Switzerland. Every day, every single day, there's 5% of my entire nation that is connected with one of our products and taking care of their health. Wow. And that, I mean, Switzerland is a small country, I agree, right? Admitted. <laughs> uh, but still, um, 5% of my own nation, my country, my birthplace is using what we are doing every single day. And that's, that's the kind of thing that makes you wake up in the morning, right? Um, when, Absolutely. Right, that you're helping 5% of your country to be healthier. I don't know how else you would define purpose. It kind of falls right into it. And then, of course, there's all the excitement or the more business side of like the market that we're building and how we're positioning ourselves and what a tremendous opportunity we have ahead of us and all of that, right? And all of this is valid. But in the end, that one fact of those 5% of Swiss people that are actually using our product every day is the kind of thing that's so unbelievable to me with such a small team that we're able to affect that many lives for the better, unquestionably for the better, right? Because we're helping them to take care of their health. So that's for me a huge source of joy and fulfillment and purpose. Yeah, I mean, it's like stacking stacking bricks in it. The more, the, the higher it gets, the more purposeful you feel in, in, in achieving what you're on, the road you're on. Love to hear that. Okay, so last question then. As we said before, you're in a very unique position, a very stressful job, but also with so much purpose behind it. What's one bit of advice you would give to someone that wants to take a risk and a step up into a position like yours, which is essentially the unknown in many ways? I would say two things. Number one, create and stick with your own set of values, personal values. What do you stand for? And the importance of that is not to be underestimated because that brings consistency in your behaviors and consistency in your behaviors it's what it was is what's going to make you efficient to work with and more and nicer to work with as well right and so if you have your moral compass of your values of how what you stand for as an individual it's going to guide you for so many decisions and it's going to help people anticipate how you're going to react and therefore sometimes you don't even need to react to anything because people will have are will have anticipated that and prepared accordingly so strong set of values and stick to them and understand why you stick to them and the second one is get yourself some help <laughs> And that help can take many shapes and forms, right? It can be in the form of a mentor, as you just said. I think that's tremendously important. It can be via networks of people going through the same things that you're going through. It can be via further education. It can be via, you know, therapy as well. You're dealing with a huge amount of stress and huge amounts of frustrations and hopes and aspirations and all of the things uh, that are going your way. And I think it would be foolish to think that everybody is completely equipped to deal with all of that. So understand what you need and get the help that you need. And this help might change over time, but never underestimate that because, and I think that was my biggest learning of the last two months, two, three months, so very recent actually, to the point where I realized if I am not motivating and inspiring the company, nobody else will. 
Yes. And so, and so how do I get motivated and inspired? I don't have a boss that's going to me every morning that is saying, go on, Max, you're doing a good job. <laughs> I don't have that. So I need to be my own source of motivation and excitement. And, and I need, if, if I'm not doing that, basically, I'm not motivating my leaders and my, my leaders might get demotivated themselves, might demotivate their teams. And there's a, a list of horrible things that will happen. So, you know, understanding that you're only as strong as your own resilience is. And therefore, you need to invest in your resilience and in your own development, just as much as you're investing in the company's development. I think this is tremendously important. Yeah, totally agree with that. Do you find, just whilst you were talking, I was thinking in my head, from my opinion, I find having employees almost is an emo motivation in itself to have greater accountability. Because if I was, you know, a, a, a solo worker, I may not be as motivated deliver in such a way but having people underneath me gives me more accountability to think right if I don't operate at the highest standard how is it going to look on the rest of the team so again it goes back to serving the people 100% I think the topic of accountability is I mean definitely when you I can see it very personally myself right I'm uh, payroll is our biggest expense in the company and I am I am the one that clicks on the button uh, <laughs> every month for payroll and so I realize the pressure of you know pressing that button that actually there's livelihoods of all my employees that are depending on how well we're performing as a company. And if that doesn't drive accountability, I don't know what does, right? And so you, you're really there to, because, because uh, in the end, whatever we're doing as a company, lives depend on it or livelihoods, maybe not lives, so like nobody's going to die because of what we, because if we're not performing, right? But livelihoods or hopes and aspirations depend on it. So I do feel that responsibility and I think it does drive accountability tremendously as well. Agreed, agreed. Max, thank you. I've really enjoyed learning all about your story. Uh, very inspiring, taking such risk and obviously achieving what you've achieved so, so far with Humano. I look forward to continue following the journey from afar. So yeah, as I say, to reiterate, thank you so much for joining me on this journey with the Startup Stories podcast. Thank you so much, Jordan. Really a big pleasure to be on it. And um, yeah, looking forward to continued conversations. Likewise. Thanks for listening to this episode of Startup Stories. I hope you enjoyed hearing from our guests and learning more about their journey in the startup world. I'll be back soon with another exciting episode featuring a new guest. So make sure to subscribe to Startup Stories so you never miss an episode. Also, don't forget to follow me on social media for updates and additional content. And if you have any suggestions for guests or topics you'd like to hear about, please reach out to me. And as always, I appreciate your support and feedback. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.